0: You're listening to the GMS podcast, an educational resource from the Guild of Music Supervisors. This third edition in our series is "Purple Rain," a retrospective, and features Prince manager and film producer Bob Cavallo, member of the Revolution, Bobby Z, with journalist Nelson George moderating the discussion. So, uh, uh, I want us to start by giving a bit of a context of, uh, for "Purple Rain." Um, I, at the time, during the '80s, I was an editor at Billboard magazine covering black music, and so. I remember seeing this man and um, Prince play at the Bottom Line. Mm. I'm going to say 1980, mm. right? 70, I think it,
1: 79, 80.
0: His, oh, 79. So it was his first show, and I believe that was his first show in New York. It was. So I was there with my college, my friends from college, because we we were fans of the second album that had Bambi and all that stuff on it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and we go to the Bottom Line, and we're not expect. We think that Prince is going to sound like he's kind of a Stevie Wonder s Guy, that's what we think, just based on some of the records. But he comes out in the bikini brief, black, <laughs> the, gray, the gray trench coat. He's, he's kind of humping the bass player, Andre Simone. He's making out with the keyboard player. Like, what the fuck? Mm. Um, and then he, as I remember, he did several songs from what will become Dirty Mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I'm telling you, like, we're not prepared for Sister, Sister, which is a song about <laughs> incest. We're not prepared for Head. No one wrote songs called Head in 1979, 80, right? Uh, and all my college friends, you know, we're 21-year-old we're college kids, but we're even more scandalized, like, wow. Uh, and then I got my first job as a real writer in 81 at a magazine called Record World. So I had a chance to see every print show in New York from Dirty Mind is kind of a big breakthrough, then it's Controversy, where he played The Ritz. That's right. Then I think... Um, 1999. Did he play Radio City or? Yep. 1999 was Radio City. Yeah. Right. So every t- so every album was coming out, and he was getting bigger. He was getting bigger. He was really he had, he was like a huge cult artist. I would say. Yep. So so that's like to, so certainly we, so the frame that he's a guy. He's definitely on the rise. But at the time, the idea of doing a movie starring Prince seemed crazy because there weren't there was not a lot of precedent. It was the Elvis Presley movies and the 60s, um, and had been it every now and then a rock star had done a movie, but it was still unprecedented for a young black artist <laughs> to, to do a major motion picture. So I'm curious, if, and Bob you can speak to this, you're his manager, how does, how do, when do you first hear about this idea called Purple Rain?
2: Okay, um, Prince was on tour for I think 1999 album, and I had a young junior partner named Steve Farnoli who was with Prince all the time. And I gave Steve a contract. Our five, first five years was going to run out in six months, and I wanted a second five years. I thought we had done an amazing job. Uh, bikini briefs or no. I mean, it was. <laughs> I took my daughter to uh, his first, the first uh, audition for me. He had called the head of Warner Brothers and said, I want the guy who puts Earth, Wind & Fire shows on to manage me. And Mo sent him to me. So they play down somewhere in Orange County. I bring my daughter, and out he comes in a trench coat with just bikini briefs and whatever. And he, I just, a little joke, he said at the intermission, what did you think? I said, I think you're great, this and that. I don't really think you should go on stage with, a, you know, underwear. In your underwear, he says, okay, I'll take it off then the next time. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I knew not to mess with him. Anyway, so so Steve calls me and he says, you're not going to believe this. He's not just signing. He's going to sign the contract, but only after you get him a major motion picture. And get this. It has to be, as he put it, not, uh, this is a put down to me, and I, I didn't have any drug dealers, but he said, not one of Cavallo's drug dealers or a jeweler. I don't know what that meant, but but a major studio has to say, it's presenting me in in my first motion picture. He actually wrote the line that was in the papers uh, a year later. Anyway, I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell am I gonna do this? I mean, I knew the business well enough to know that he was not, no studio was gonna wanna make a movie with this new kid, so we had to do it ourselves. And I went. I'll, I'll go quickly. I went to Geffen, and that didn't work out for David various. Geffen,
0: the, the entrepreneur music, yeah. exactly.
2: And, and he owned a record company at the time, and he had made that movie with, uh, uh, you know, about the hookers and the college kid. Oh, uh, risky business. Risky business. It was yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah, sorry. Tom Cruise. I'm sorry. Hey, you know. <laughs> so I, I, th- I thought it'd be perfect for him to do this. And he didn't want to do it, he wa- he wanted to do it. He wanted me to wait another year, get Prince to be bigger, and uh, and make the movie for a million less than I thought we could make it. That, I was advised that, I hadn't didn't have a lot of experience, but I had some experience. So then uh, I went to Richard Pryor, who had a company called Indigo, and that didn't work out because the guy who ran Richard Pryor's company wanted more control than, than I knew was possible to give him. When you manage Prince, you know that you got to protect yourself from impossible situations. And he's not going to listen to Jim Brown, no matter how big he is. So that didn't work out. Then I went to uh, Guba Peters. Who I, you know, you may know who that is. They were big they, producers. Peter Guber owns part of the Warriors.
0: Uh, they were famous. They became famous for Batman later. Yeah, they were big producers in the. They were
2: big was, producers, but they immediately tried to screw me. So, and and anyway, they passed because it was too dark. They wanted me to have the script rewritten, and I wasn't going to do that. To, uh, so a question: was there, there was a was there a there was a script Oh yeah, the record. first job. The first job when given the order to do this in order to get a contract I went to my lawyer I said, "Can you find me a writer?" There was a writer named William Blynn who wrote the uh, story about the football player from San Diego, I forget his name. But anyway, he won a, a Grammy or I mean an Emmy for it. So Brian he wrote like song. A t- Brian Song.
1: Brian yeah, a Song, Brian
2: Song. He he wrote a uh, uh, a script that was really like a TV movie. You know, Prince Arrived. I mean, it uh, was vanity then, but uh, so uh, she arrives in town and the the car is loaded with uh, luggage and stuff and she's lost and there's this kid on a motorcycle and he tells them where the street is that their new house is. And, of course, they start flirting, and I'm going, what the hell? Like, this is not Prince. This looks like a high school movie. So I, I, I went to every director that I could get to. They all passed. Using the William B. Blinn script. And eventually, uh, I went to see uh, a movie called Reckless. Uh, I can't think of the director's name, but he, it was his first movie. He was an SC graduate. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it was okay. I was So I, I'm in the screening room by myself, I thought, and then out comes this kid. <laughs> he says, what did you think? I said, that was okay. I thought the editing was, was good. He said, oh, I edited the movie. So he was a classmate of this wow. guy. Um, So the director passed, but he suggested that I look at at, uh, Al Magnoli's student film. I did, and Magnoli, he was also here, as you all probably know, and it was wonderful. It was called jazz, and he could shoot music. So I said, what the hell, I'm going to give it a shot. I offered him the $75,000 DGA minimum. And he passed. (laughs) I'm glad you giggled because it was funny to me. I said, how could you pass? You don't have a pot to piss in. What are you talking about? (laughs) And he said, well, the script is square. I said, I know that. I said, do you write? He said, yeah. I said, well, then rewrite it. (laughs) So we meet a week later, and he starts telling me about the closing scene in The Godfather which is uh, the baptism scene. While, he, while Michael's at the baptism, all of his enemies are being killed. He said, that's how we'll open the movie. We'll have each of the parties in Barnes and Apollonia and whoever, uh, and myself, all preparing for the night. In the meantime, Prince is doing a song. I thought, well, that's a pretty brilliant opening. Introduce all the characters. So we start going, and we're using my money and Prince's money. There's no deal. I have no no studio wants it, nothing. And in the uh, 11th hour, uh, I got a... We did a, a negative pickup, but I got the loan the night of the rap party.
0: So wait a minute. So, so Warner Brothers wasn't involved uh, during the making of the film? I got the loan the night of the rap party. The only thing
2: Warner's does is guarantee the loan when they decide... So, so you guys
0: shot the whole movie we, on your we money. We shot
2: the movie. We had run out of money. I was... Wow. Wow. You took a big risk. Yeah. Well, you see, there's a company called Film Finance. And the guy who put me into the academy, uh, uh, he, he, he told me that this would eventually... We, we'll get this, but it looks like the bank... Um, wants to wait till there's no risk whatsoever. <laughs> so, and their job is to, they either take the film, if, I'm, if I get too far behind or if I'm not overseeing the shooting of a, of a picture of some quality, they can take the movie from us. So, which would have meant being fired by Prince. I mean, it was, it was quite a, kind so, of nightmarish.
0: So everyone, had pa- everyone in town had passed on the script at that point. And you guys, put a, how much money were you into at that point?
2: Um, I don't know, maybe four million, something like that, four and a half million.
0: So, it, and wow. by the way, the oh. night of, the <laughs> night that the trucks
2: were supposed to leave, because we go to LA to do one one or two days more shooting, right? The the teamsters, uh, I mean, the checks to the teamsters weren't good unless the bank <laughs> put it in. An and the teamsters union was threatening me all the way through this, and they would come and slash the tires of the trucks. If, if we weren't straight with them. Right. I got the money the night of the rap party. I mean, I got the okay.
0: Wow. So, so Bobby, so you're in Prince's band. You've known Prince since he was a kid, right? How very, did you, when did you first meet Prince?
1: Uh, I was 19 turning 20. He was 17 turning 18. Uh, we were very unfamous together. Um, I was Napoleon Dynamite and he was Pedro, pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, it was pretty ugly, but uh, to, to watch this metamorphosis of this, uh, he always had the talent, but we all, he was uncommonly shy, as we all know, but only if you didn't know him. If, if you knew him, he would talk your ear off. Right. If you didn't know him, you thought that you know you didn't exist. He looked at you like you were a vampire or something, so he had this persona, but he really had the drive. And I was telling Bob that the metamorphosis from the beginning to Purple Rain, and I, I give this man, you know, the credit for delivering the Grand Slam home run to win the World Series, because it got to that point, and Prince was pushing, and had the creativity, had the energy, and more importantly, he had the songs, and that's what we're all talking about today songs are the currency of this business, and Prince was rifling them off for a while, like you couldn't believe. You just told a story about you got out of the airport, you get in his car, he puts in a tape, and you just sit there for two hours and are blown away. So the music drove this movie, of course, but to get it made, and, and, and Prince's impatience, and you're trying to do normal course of business during the day with all these people, and he, they don't understand. No, no, it's not going to work. He won't accept that. It, you know, you have to talk in Prince speak, which <laughs> which means like yesterday. And you know, he's going to kill us all if we don't do this or this whole. It always felt like it was going to fall apart every day. But no, he 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 was respectful to
2: us until the Purple Rain tour, and then he began to be eaten by
1: the thing. But up until then, he would listen. Yeah, he he. Thank God he listened to get this movie made, but in, in terms of the album yeah, from, yeah, talk about the process from all and those albums, you gotta remember man, uh, understand that, and remember that Purple Rain was the sixth album right. of a six album deal. So these shows you were talking about, you know, there was For You, and there was a second album, and there was Dirty Mind, there was Controversy, there was 1999, and then there's Purple Rain. That's a long span of time. So Purple Rain album had, was slowed down because of the movie. So he had a show from 1983 that we recorded live that was the genesis of, and actually the master of Purple Rain. So tell and, me
0: about that show. So he, you guys did a show in Minneapolis at First Avenue, and at that point, were the, the, those songs hadn't been recorded yet.
1: No. No, we, we, we'd been in the warehouse, we have been rehearsing on the, the movie. Was, we were taking acting class and dancing class with the time, which is a whole comedic Vision, you know, (laughs) and uh, it it, we recorded this '83 show with a mobile truck. Uh, my brother David was the engineer, David's in the mobile truck, and um, we got I Would Die For You and Baby I'm a Star, Purple Rain, and um, Purple Rain became you know the actual master, so but it also had electric intercourse. So later on in the album, he had once he met. Patty Cetero or Apollonia, he was inspired to write the beautiful one. So, so that was written. At, that was written sort of after. That was the last song recorded because he was forced to wait. Uh-huh. It was the only time in all those albums that he had forced to wait for the movie, which made him edit because he was just whipping in the studio, mastering, mixing. This is done. This is done. This is done. Let's put it out, you know, like he did later in life. You know, he Mm -hmm. just kept, that's what, he always thought, like, in the 30s, you know, they put out uh, an album a month. Why can't I do that? You know, he didn't, he just had that much music in his head and that much coming out. So with Purple Rain, he had to wait for the film and the editing and the process and the business that they were doing. And that made it the masterpiece it is because Oh, I wrote a better song. Oh, I fixed Windows Car. I'm going to take the bass off. You know, he had ideas that he just left the mixes up and they became perfectly distilled into this fine wine that we hear today. Could you talk about, uh, what's your favorite song on the album? Well, Purple Rain for obvious reasons, just because it's it's just so uniquely the revolution, you know. But.
0: So could you talk about how how Prince... How, as a band member, the song is introduced to you and the process under which you guys learn the music from Prince?
1: Well, he, he, he was trying to... He had a script, like you said. William Blinn had a rough script. He was, the guy was on our tour bus. Uh, they sent William on the tour bus to observe us and write about our characters, trying to develop a story. So he was trying to write songs for the movie. So he had concepts of what he wanted to do, um, and we played him for... Bob and Steve, and then eventually the director, and you know, Let's Go Crazy was, you know, people were starting to decide where they would be placed, and things started to evolve, but all Prince songs started in different ways, I was telling you, you know, sometimes they would come at you, if you were asleep, he'd record a complete master by himself in, overnight, and then you'd come to the studio the next day going, wow, but if he wanted a certain sound, then you work on a song for two weeks, you know, so... Let's Go Crazy, the opening of Let's Go Crazy, which you only hear in the film, is a 12-inch. I mean, it's got all these passages. We worked Mm -hmm. on that for a long time. Computer Blue, all these songs were like 20 minutes long. Yeah. And they were edited down. So Computer Blue has lots of different, it becomes a different film. It's a half an hour almost uh, with the the hallway scene and everything. So, I mean, it was just the music was, I guess my point is, is that by the time it got to Purple Rain as the soundtrack for this film, he had learned all those craft, all the craft from five albums, his whole history of making it, getting rid of old managers, eventually finding the right manager to deliver this vision that he put him on a high wire to get, and you know, he got it. So it 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 was like I the joke is is that any moment, you know, people could fall off this 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 high wire. But Prince created a situation that was so tense and creative at the same time there was never anything like it, right? It was just yeah. Uniquely creative. I don't think, uh,
2: I didn't feel, I I think Steve did because he was in the line of fire all the time, but I, I never felt like I was on the high wire. I thought I had just had the best luck possible to work with this guy, you know? And whenever he'd play me a song, especially in those times when I'd go to Minneapolis or sometimes he'd come and go in the conference room, kick off those boots, play me some back like especially if there were horn arrangements and stuff. I knew what he liked. If if, if I if I got if I got off on something some line that he, in there and it was one of his he'd cackle and he'd dance, right? Just me and him in the room. He was pretty amazing uh, and and sweet. He'd take me out for a steak dinner. Oh wait, I got to tell you I gotta tell you one little aside. So I can't tell you the details, but I made a deal where I traded a million dollars of the, Warner's was supposed to give us seven million. I said, you only have to give us six. If I can just not give you any publishing, because I I went to, to Prince's lawyer was, uh, Barbara Streisand's lawyer as well. I said, when Barbara did those records, that were associated with the movies she made, right. how much did they give per record to Columbia? He said, we gave them 50 cents a record. So I offered that, and they wanted $1.35, so you know we wow. were no, it was no. I offered, I said, how about if it's only six million instead of seven million, but I get my money back as fast as Warner's does, right. and you get 20 cents a record after two and a half million. We sold, as you all know, I don't know, 12, 15 million, whatever the hell the number was, which meant at 50 cents, he would have got six million. Instead, he's gonna get two million or whatever the deal was. So I tell Prince this at dinner, and he's looking after telling me, isn't this steak kicking? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he, and I tell him the story and he looks up and he goes, don't brag. <laughs> <laughs> I saved them four million bucks, or he saved us four million bucks. And...
0: So, in retrospect, it seems a no brainer that Warner Brothers Films and Warner Brothers Records would work together, in retrospect. But at the time, Warner Brothers Films wasn't. How did they finally, how did they finally come on this board? This was a
2: trouble. Like, when we showed the first, they demanded to show the rough before we had filled in. So, there were scenes mis- scene missing slugs all through the. It was two and a half hours long. You know that Prince movie couldn't be two and a half hours long. So but was, they wanted to see all the bad. footage. They just demanded. We didn't have some of the comedy in and whatever. I show it, and Bob Daly and Terry Semmel stand up in the screening room and turn to Mo Austin and say, you want to give me another one of your rock and roll acts to make a movie? Because they had lost money on One Trick Pony. with uh, Right, Paul Simon. Yeah. So they hated it. Mm. And Mike Ovitz, who was my personal agent, was there in the screening room and he turned around and yelled at those two guys, hey, if you don't want it, we'll have, you'll have a check in the morning. We'll take this. Bob, I think you've got something great here. I can see when you cut this, it's gonna be fantastic. He, he
1: understood. Wow,
0: wow, Yeah. So he basically intimidated
1: Warner Brothers. They, and- <laughs> wow. they yes. surrendered immediately. Oh, yeah, it, it took a lot of oh, time. Oh, there's so
2: much detailed stuff.
1: How long did it
0: take? So, so the, it, how long did the, was, it, was the post-production process then to get it down yeah. from two and a half hours to the film that we know? Well, it wasn't hard. Uh, came I mean, out in July.
2: Yeah,
1: I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how long we spent. It
0: That's, came out in July of uh, 84. So
1: yeah. we shot it, you know, it was about six months. It came out. It was at the Chinese theater, it was on MTV. And the timing of the film, MTV was just starting to happen. They cracked the Michael Jackson color barrier, and Prince, you got Prince, you know, with Little Red Corvette, the setup, and then Purple Rain was a perfect long-form video. And uh, it, the premiere party at the palace, and you know, everything just kind of came into place for the success of the film. The timing was impeccable, but of course. You know, when Dove's Cry was a massive hit. To, yeah, to, to I, lead and I,
2: had a, I almost got decked by a promotion man who told me that Let's Go Crazy should be the first single. Uh-huh. And I said, he, he felt that It was too sissified Dove's Cry.
0: Oh, you said it was what? He felt what?
2: He used the word sissified. <laughs> hmm. so, so, so I got so incensed. This is, this is,
0: the, one, this is the Warner Brothers. Uh, yeah, I'm now. not
2: saying who. I got so incensed that, um, you know, he could have thrown me out the window, <laughs> that big dude. So anyway, we went with Dove's Cry. Uh, you know, we put it out so early, it was just so great to have the people buying the record, being, you know, they were, they were sold on this. We did uh, radio stations promotions, so they could do a, a midnight showing of Purple Rain in all the key cities. By the way, I'll tell you one fast story. This is, uh, I go in and I'm trying to pitch to to, uh, Terry Semmel, who was co-president of Warner's Pictures, to get uh, a lot of theaters. Back in those days, a thousand theaters was huge. I mean, it's not like today. So I'm trying to get 800 theaters. I'm trying to, and he has his head of, distribution on the phone, on the speaker, and I'm sitting in Terry's office. And the guy goes, well, you know, I can't get it in the drive-ins down south. And a matter of fact, down south, this isn't gonna work. Now we're hearing the racist thing right off the bat, right? And maybe maybe I can get 400, for something like that. Wow. And I go apeshit, and, <laughs> and I say, do you understand that if you don't believe anything that i'm telling you if you if in the paper it says warner brothers presents prince in his first motion picture in the inner city of every town in this country the whole town is going to go see the movie that's 40 million don't you can't you can't do this you can't believe this guy so he tells him in front of me get me 800 theaters or i'll find somebody who will so we got 760 mm.
0: One of, the, one of the really ballsy things I thought about the marketing of Purple Rain was remember, this is Michael Jackson Mania is Everywhere. So there's Billboard, I work at Billboard at the time, and Billboard does this huge Michael Jackson special. He sold all these records. But the last page of the of Billboard, I'll never forget it, was a giant ad for Purple Rain. The, the rain coming down? And it says, the Purple Rain will begin on blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, that's ballsy. Because basically, it was like you jumped in the middle of a Michael Jackson celebration. And you plant the
1: Prince flag. Well, you, you got to remember that, you know, th- Thriller, you know, the setup for Purple Rain was also Thriller. You know, you had Mike, you know, Michael making that mini-movie. Right. So it was always, you know, Prince was very competitive. Uh, I called him the Muhammad Ali of rock and roll. I mean, he really took it to everybody all the time. <coughs> and, you know, oh, Thriller, oh, I'm doing a movie. You know, it was always just kind of boom, boom. And, and. Um, yeah, he enjoyed. I'm, sure. Sure, he he enjoyed enjoyed, I'm sure he enjoyed that. Bobby, the only thing about that was,
2: I once said to Prince, Prince, because you remember how he was putting music out all the time, just right. so fast. I said, you can't put out your music as it comes to you, like your Miles Davis or somebody. If you want to compete with Michael, you have to. Every thing has to be a giant marketing plan, yeah. planned two years in advance and he looked
1: at me like I was yeah. nuts, you know. And you I know knew what? he wouldn't buy that's, it. I give, that's what I give Bob Cavallo the most credit for was what I said before, is that, as we know now, he, he you know, they just put out the 26 independent albums he had, and yeah. one day, you know, it's like he wanted to put out music all the time, but the marketing of a major label is slow and laborious, and it takes time to set up all this stuff, and he had no time for that. Mm-hmm. And, Bob, look what happened when he listened, look what happened when it finally slowed down and all the ducks came in a row, and we're still talking about Purple Rain today because of this man. I I just say because of this man. (laughs) Bobby.
0: Speaking of of Prince and putting out a lot of music, I just wanna, one of the interesting things about uh, the singles on Purple Rain is that the B-sides were as good as some of the the A-sides. So the B side of um, the B side of let's go crazy is Erotic City. The B side of When Doves Cry is 17 Days. Jesus. And these are songs, that are as good as most people's they're A sides, believe me. So how did that how did that whole thing happen?
1: Let, let me let me just do a little simple math Please, for yeah. everybody. I, I met him, let's just let's go back to that. I met him yeah. uh, so 78, 79, right? Uh, let's just call it nineteen eighty just to be Even So I knew him for 43 years before he passed. He wrote a song a day, roughly. So 365 times 43 is kind of an approximation of how many songs are in the vault. And he was always writing songs that that were at that, in that era, they were just like potato chips. It was one more incredible than the next. They just kept coming. Wow. So I want to um, talk a little bit
0: about, um, so it's interesting because Prince is such a controlling person and controlling artist, that he allowed someone else to do the score. So how did, how did that happen? Michael Colombera? I think he just, well, I don't know the
2: answer, and maybe Bobby knows, well, but to Mr. my Char- way of thinking, Char- he just was so overwhelmed with work. That he couldn't—he would have loved to have done
0: it. Yeah, I was was
1: amazed when I thought about it that Prince would let someone else actually do the score. You got to remember who Michelle Colombier was. He did the strings for Rufus. Uh So he had had experience on all that incredible music that Prince loved—the Chaka Khan stuff with Rufus—and and and so he obviously, when he reached out to him for strings, he did the family. Michelle ended up Uh doing the strings on the family too. So it was just because he, his love for that Rufus album uh that that he I think he like he said he couldn't he tried to do everything I'm sure uh, right
2: I I it just was once he had to act every day yes. and, and just think about what and then his choreography and uh, oh god it was, it, it, he was
1: is it was he finally amazing. got overwhelmed
0: right, So um what is the, the uh you guys both work with them so closely in, the, in this epic record. Is there, what's your favorite memory of, in either case, of working if, from the process of the movie? Was it something that sticks out for you?
1: It, it, it was, when it finally got rolling at First Avenue, um, we closed First Avenue down in Minneapolis for about a month. And, yeah, so um, 20,
0: I think it was 25 days. It,
1: it also, the, the thermometer dipped to like a minus 28 with a 40 below wind chill. I felt sorry for the, the the all the, the LA crew that had to come there but that was that was added to the the element of it um it just seeing prince you know like if you start back to where I was joking around that we were clowns um you know to have him acting in a major motion picture and to grow up with him and be part of that and then have him go on and become this global superstar was just was just astonishing to me and I I to say I was proud of him is, you know, is just an understatement. So there, all of that was just overwhelming to me. But the fact that it was just, you know, it was a movie, in a movie. There was a lot of trouble, a lot of actors were, you know, Bob and I had to do some babysitting with Morris Day, and we had yeah, some things, oh, yeah. you know. There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, craziness. It, but it, I look back, it was it was fun. We were talking about an agreement. With, did he, Bob said, I hope you had fun doing that. And it, it was fun. I, 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 had a,
2: I had a great time doing it, even though the stress. But to, I, I'll just quickly tell you. So when you have a negative pickup deal, that means that, that a film insurance company is insuring the person that's going to eventually pay for the negative that it will be of sufficient quality to be marketable. So that the guy with 60 film credits... Name uh, Lindsley Parsons Jr. was my guy. He was the guy who was overseeing me. He said, "You're way behind schedule. You're in danger of us taking the picture." Mm-hmm. So we're talking, and he says, "All right, I'm going to come in." And he flies in, so to my lush office at the Holiday Inn, not a little bigger than this, and he comes in, and we sit there. And this is what we did. He's going through the pages. He's obviously thought about it, and he says, now right here, he folds this page and folds the next page. He says, now we just do a little writing connection to this other one, and we got two pages out of the script. I swear to God. And, you know, you can imagine, I'm thinking of what Magnolia's going to say, but in the meantime, we're not going to have the movie anymore if I don't let him work on a lot of the fluff. So So you really had that you cut
0: it down to the bone in terms of?
2: Yes. And then after we shot it, the three of us, me, Ruffalo, and Farnoli, took, you know, back then they didn't have the, the ability to... We had numbered video videos right. of the movie. And, then, and we tried to suggest our edits to, the, oh, to, right. to Magnolia and to the editor because we had to cut it
1: down. And I knew it couldn't be too long. I think it was a great job done by all. You know, I, I just want to add that I think the greatest memory was the musical performances, because those are lip syncs, but nobody's ever rehearsed wow. a, a lip sync more than we lip did. Lip syncs usually are usually terrible. Huh? Lip syncs are usually terrible. We, and then he's and you, fantastic. You can't tell he the was the best syncs. in the world. There's we, nobody. We rehearsed that in front of a mirror. We watched a video 5,000 times. I mean, we, we wanted to get it perfect. Uh, obviously, it was our own recording, so we could master it, but it was it was um the craziest thing to be that emotional in a performance and for a, a cameras those, when those cameras are in your face you know you 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 feel different, but it was a lip sync, and uh we pulled it off. You might not know this, but th- we now
2: this is later on, and we now are going to lose the film to film finance company, unless I can figure out how to shoot the music in in like 10 days rather than a month. So I go and I tell Prince, I work on him a little, saying, you know, Albert's gonna wanna take different shots of you on every take. He's gonna want like, what? Six, 10, 12 takes for each performance of yours. And I knew. he. Exploded. No, i am giving him one or two. I said, "Well, mm-hmm. we'll give sure. him a couple." So now I go back and I say, "You know, you're only going to get one or two takes. So, how about we get some more camera crews?" And so we end up with flying them in from Atlanta, Chicago, all over. Five camera crews, four and a handheld. So
0: you shot so those performances. You we shot were...
2: the Prince performances in five days.
0: Okay, I was always curious. I, I, you know, Morris Day is such a big in the times. a big part of the movie. How, how was, you know, Morris and Prince had been, as I understand, they had been in the same band. He was his drummer. His drummer. So how did that relationship evolve?
1: Prince started with Andre Simone, Morris Day, on the north side of Minneapolis, in a band called Champagne. Also in the north side of Minneapolis was Flight Time, right. which was Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Alexander O'Neill, all these characters were alive and roaming the streets of Minneapolis. By the time he, um, I met him, it was after high school. If you called yourself a musician after high school back then, that was serious. My dad said, never put musician on any written form. (laughs) Back then it was like a cancer. You know, it was like a terrible word. So, you know, at 19, he had left Champagne and he brought Andre with him. And then I was a studio drummer at at Moonsound where he made the demo and I met them there. So all of a sudden we're a trio. And so Morris and those guys were, were kind of left behind until he became famous enough, and then he started saying, I'm going to do another album with The Time, and then he started bringing all these, you had to bring these albums into one of Here's another band he wants to produce. Oh, we, they weren't unhappy. Yeah, I mean, it's... They were, they were not unhappy. No, it's, it's, it's... I mean, it was gold, and they didn't have to fight for it. It was just... It's just sidetracking, you know, he, when you're supposed to focus on his album release, here he comes with The Time. Right. So, I mean, there's all for, as a business, but... It was a great album and he launched a whole group. So he started rehearsing them. So he created, the, he took the old flight time, he went back and got them, he got rid of Alexander O'Neill and put Morris Day, instead of the drums, he put him in front. It's, it's interesting, the, I mean, I, I, a lot of people may not know Alexander O'Neill, but he, he's a
0: great R&B singer who, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis ended up making some incredible albums with later. later. So it's interesting, why, why did he, What do you think he made it? Because, uh, you know, Alexander is a better singer than, than
1: Morris Day. Um, you know, there's a lot of, Alex is a very upfront kind of guy. You know, Prince, like we were talking about in the dressing room, with Prince, you kind of get, like, one conversation to see if you can have another. So, (laughs) it all depends how the first conversation goes, and then you move on to the next one. I I actually had 43 years of conversations, but they're always still kind of parables and puzzles and strange, you know. (laughs) You never really got to the sentence. It was always, like kind of guess what he's saying, but um, Alex just didn't fit that mold, whereas Morris was somebody he could, you know, they created this goofy Jamie Starr character yeah, where Jamie he's a, you know, a producer and there's that one picture where they're all, cra- you know, he, they, it was his alter ego. He was, it was a comedy show. It was, right. the, the, the whole time thing is tongue-in-cheek.
0: So they were, they were so close that they were able to create this character together that it became the Morris Day character. It
1: was... Prince's alter ego. If you watched right. that '83 video, you can right. see. I mean, he was Jamie Starr. Was this kind of yes and all that kind of, you know, my water by brass waterbed, all that stuff Morris says in the movie. It's just Prince with you know with making himself laugh and making somebody else make himself laugh with this with this. You um, know, he he never
2: wanted it, uh, Morris. That but like I think he probably because he might have been ensnared. With the drugs and stuff, but when after Purple Rain, we had all this success, and Prince wasn't going to make any movies connected, I said, I got a great idea for you guys. Purple Rain 2, The Further Adventures of the Time. Right. That was going to be the wow. movie yeah. that I wanted that, to make. Yeah. And cut back to the nightclub with some mob guys are in this audience, and, and Morris and them win the second prize, which is a month in Vegas. Right. In a, in a lounge. And of course, they, my idea was they go to Vegas. Their only friends are the showgirls, but the cops and the mob, both of them are after them for various reasons, whatever. And I tell that to Morris. I say, you were going to have a monster home run. You're a star. You, that movie made you a star. I said, you made me a clown. Wow. Yeah. It, it, oh, he was vicious, and then that was the end of our goes, relationship.
1: That goes back to the history of what I was talking about. There's right. a lot of stuff that happened, right, from childhood with Prince to the point where he got the deal, right. in, out here with Warner Brothers, um, which was miraculous in Minneapolis in those days. I mean, there was some fertile ground being laid. There was some '60s stuff being laid, and you know, guys like my brother and Owen Husney, his first manager, different people had experience that got him out here, but he left a lot of stuff behind, but he'd always get back. He'd Sonny Thompson, he did later, went back and got him later. When he got people, it was a mixed bag of emotions, as he's saying, that... that, that. So you're saying that basically Morris Day turned down Purple Rain too? Oh, okay, I never heard that one. That's a
0: good, that's a revelation for me, wow.
2: Well, no one's, no, no one's ever heard it, I, and it, it just, Prince was still around, I wouldn't even be talking about it. He, you know, Morris disappointed me at the fact that he didn't understand the value of his comedic ability. Yeah. He, he could have had a huge career. And at the time, maybe
0: his mind was twisted a little because of uh, whatever, substances, sure. you know. Is that, so let me, I, mean, I know, is that the reason that Jerome Benton is in Cherry Moon and not Morris Day? Wow, okay, got some, got some Prince news here. Um, we have a little time, we have, we have time for questions from the, from the audience, right? If you have a question you want to ask Bob or um, Bobby, please raise your hand or say hello. Or Hello. Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to know how the initial connection with Prince, the introduction was made, and maybe the first few things you did to really steamline his career.
2: He saw Earth, Wind & Fire play in Minneapolis. And I don't know if you guys... Earth, Wind, and Fire in the 70s, late 70s. and I mean, they did these unbelievable shows. They were the best live
0: show on the planet. Thank you. They really were.
2: And, I, and I was fully, Maurice and I were like partners. I mean, until the day he died, we were very, very close. And uh, so he called Mo Austin, who was the head of Warners, and asked him, who does that? Who helps Maurice? He said Bob Cavallo and they set up the meeting and that was it. I mean, I wanted to sign Prince before, we had a label, Maurice White and I, <laughs> called uh, Columbo. A- A-R-C, oh, well Columbo was his production A-R-C company A-R-C and, C- and, and A-R-C was our American recording company, whatever. And, and so I tried to sign this kid, the head of a and at Columbia, thought it would, took it upon himself to go and see Prince, go around me, and say, I can get you Maurice White to help you make your move, your pick, your uh, records. And of course, the last thing Prince wanted was a, a producer. The the whole thing with Warner's was on his deal was that he would produce. And and so anyway, and didn't, didn't I don't didn't want to go on too much.
0: When Prince didn't the Orphan of Fire also have um, their own kind of complex out here in LA? Yeah, we had it. Yeah. So, I, so Prince also took a little, a little bit from... Well, oh, was, excuse
2: yeah. me, I had to have that built. I, I built the, the complex for Earth, Wind & Fire. Right. When I say I built it, I mean, I got it done. I used Warner, uh, Columbia's money, whatever I had to do. Right. The building, by the way, that the complex was in was owned by me and Ruffalo as an investment. And we had to sell it back for a cost.
1: Uh, Paisley Park <laughs> is built on... The complex. And and the same
2: guy, you know. The same same architect? The same same fella that worked for me, um, passed away from ALS. Anyway, he ran both of them. Nice. And then eventually he got to be. Grossman? Yeah. Harry Grossman. Harry Grossman. And he got to be the job at Disney to be worldwide in control of all of their facilities.
1: Yeah, great guy. (laughs) This is a huge question. Uh, It's for Bobby and Bob, and maybe Bobby first, because you knew Prince his whole life, but how would you describe his genius, Mm. the essence of his genius and gift? You know, um, they they say that uh, people would walk in on Leonardo da Vinci, and he would be painting a picture with one hand and writing a letter with another. And uh, the first time I ever met Prince, I was at Moon Sound. Uh, the studio Chris Moon, produced the demo, and I was working with a band in the back, and I was walking down the hallway, and the door of the studio A was open. This is when you could kind of buy four tracks, and they weren't real studios. You could throw stuff up. Uh, but this was a fairly nice, independent studio, and uh, I walked by. And I heard this glorious vocals, which now I know are the vocals for the song "Baby" on the first album. And I look in there and I see the afro, and I see the side eye that we all know now. He gives you that side eye, and I'm just being me. And I walk in, "Hey, how you doing?" And he looks at me like you know Dracula or something. <laughs> and I just sit down, you know, and I go, "What's going on here? Play that for me." And, okay, you know, and so. He plays me baby and it's finished warm. And then of course, he immediately puts me to work. Punch, <laughs> punch me in. It's like, okay. I sit in the control, put my hand. He goes out in the drum booth, hit record. He starts putting down a drum track. And I'm like, wow, he's like stopping and starting and what's he doing? Comes in, picks up a bass, against the drum track. And I'm just sitting there going, what is going on in here? Picks up a guitar, does the same thing. Then he does the da Vinci. He goes to the keyboard, he takes the guitar on sustain, and he does the run, and he's singing the same line on the note, and I just like, whoa. Immediately, I was completely blown away. And the genius, to answer the question, is he's one in a billion. It's not like, it's Mozart, it's, it's When you listen to Prince music, it's 4-4 four, four, and it's simple, but these songs are not really 4-4, four, four. there's stuff on the three, and if you write it out like music, you'll see that Prince's songs are like puzzles that more than anything else, and you had to follow these notes that appear in the three and and the four and the one, and he's got these little accents that make them listenable over and over again. He was a genius in so many ways, Sometimes I felt like he was just laughing at all of us. <laughs> his oh, genius. I,
2: I can't put much on top of that, other than I think he knew the, the psyche of. This is the least important part of this, but I, he he knew about what young girls were thinking. He really did. I mean, in in a in a way that was like it was part of his personality to be. Very, very feminine as well. It was. As,
1: yeah. Well, he had, you know, he had the, the nicest chick's ass in the history of show business. And, and he, he worked it. Those first few years, I felt like I was back in a stripper. I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> no, if,
0: if you saw the shows with the bikini brief, you saw the back of the bikini brief a lot. I know. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't afraid the show his tissue at all. Madam.
2: So following up on the steak dinner, um, don't brag comment. Yeah. So Prince obviously had a very, you know, brilliant mind, but he, he, in addition, he had this, you know, the the concept of value of what he was, the finance value. And he obviously entrusted you. So can you just speak a little more around that? You know, he understood the value of his copyright. And so that's why he was very protective and And so thank you for these wonderful stories. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure I...
1: The protecting his songs and the way...
2: Oh, what we did, which, by the way, I disagreed with everything that happened after we left. He owned 100% of his songs. No publishing company. A a woman in the law office did the business and uh, paid a salary. One year... It deals in foreign countries mostly so his lawyer could go around and buy people, have dinner with people. But just one year uh, distribution deals small percentage maybe 15%, 10% So basically he owned 100% of his publishing, he owned 100% of the complex of Paisley Park with no loans, he had 200 acres subdividable to three houses per acre and a big mansion on there too, which he never lived in. So he had all of that, if you understand finance, to have none of that encumbered by any debt And I did it because I saw to it that that's how it was because he spent money like it was just water. He just, and he'd fly girls in and shoot videos with them. I have a camera crew from Chicago because he had a thing on Friday night that he wanted to shoot this girl on Saturday. And so all that money just kept going out, but I protected his bottom line. And then when he went elsewhere, all of a sudden, some publishing company gave him a giant advance, which got a big commission to the law firm, and then, you know, he didn't own it anymore. But I don't, I don't know if that has anything to do with what you asked, because the echo is making it impossible for me to understand.
0: That was great, thank you. Okay. Well, uh, we have to, we're about to wrap up. I just wanna, Bob and I have never been on stage and talked about this, but there's a song that's, that reputedly is written about us, that Prince wrote about us, uh, that's on the Black Album which is called Bob George. Yeah. And uh, supposedly it's, it's a diss record of both of us. <laughs> so, Bob, do you, what do you know about that record? Because we never talked about it. Well, you know, I don't know why he did it. <laughs> it, it
2: had no, there was no implication of any truth to that fur coat or whatever it is I was supposed to have given some girl. Right. But he loved, let me tell you, there was a part of him, a playful part of him, and I was so serious. You know, well, when he'd relax, I'd, I could loosen up with him, but mostly I was always trying to make sure he didn't kill himself mm. back then. And I don't, I don't mean drugs, but anyway. Uh, <coughs> and so I just think he liked, you know, embarrassing me. He did. It.
0: Yeah, he, he, he called me the, the skinny motherfucker with a high-pitched voice. <laughs> and then, so, yeah. But I think he I, said I, I, I managed. He said Bob George managed the skinny yeah, motherfucker. But I, I, I think uh, I think um, the reason I always thought the re- I tried to figure out why he did, because we had a good relationship years later. It wasn't like he was mean to me later. But I think it goes back to Purple Rain because uh, I gave so the Purple Rain tour starts in Detroit. I was at the show, and it's the only bad review I ever gave of Prince. Because the actual, it's the first, I've seen him like every show, like for like five years in a row. It's the first show I'd seen where he wasn't free. He basically did oh, the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I kind of crit- critiqued that, and I don't think he liked it too much. Because um, that's the only time I've ever, like, we crossed swords, so to speak. And then I, I saw the tour several times later,
1: and it got better and better. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 of course, that's it. We didn't even tour Europe or Japan or Asia with Purple Rain. He never Rain did any of the stuff I wanted. He was trapped. To you, were, yes. you, you were absolutely 100 percent right. He felt trapped like a Broadway play. The thing yes. ran every night. He couldn't stand it. You know, he kept changing the show. He just, you know, he loved to be free. So, yes. but my question is, okay, so Purple Rain was, you know, 84, 85. The, the Black album was many years well, later.
0: Supposedly, he made the Black album. Prince fans will know this. In like 87, it was supposed to be the album that became Love, Sexy. And then he made love sexy, and he.
1: Back album didn't come out till like 93. He held the grudge for several years. Yeah, he, he did. Wrote the song whenever. But I guess my comment is that a Canadian sealed copy of that album just sold for forty-seven thousand dollars. What? So, too bad that you know. Well, Bob, you know, we should uh, sign it. So were we you? Were it?
2: you? Were you who he was writing about? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize. that. I thought he was doing it to me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's great! Yeah, well, p- better you than me. Yeah, <laughs> I can anyway, tell okay, my no, wife no, no, no. not. It wasn't my story. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Bobby Z. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you.